The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello. It was a new kind of book, The Autobiography of a Horse. Think about that for a moment. The Autobiography of a Horse. And it earned its author 20 pounds. Her name was Anna Sewell. And the book, which we know as Black Beauty, went on to sell more than 50 million copies. We'll talk to our guest, Celia Brayfield, about this unlikely author and her enduring legacy today on The History of Literature. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. This is a great story, full of struggle and tragedy, but also perseverance and ultimately triumph, literary triumph. It's hard not to admire Anna Sewell, and we will hear all about it when our guest arrives. But first, we will see if we admire another poem in our merry jaunt through the selected poetry of Emily Dickinson, handpicked for us by critic Helen Vendler. Why do I suspect we will admire this poem? Maybe because Emily is batting a thousand so far. Today we're up to poem number 224 which, like our last installment, which looked at the sunrise and sunset, 224 is a description of some natural phenomena. The first line is a killer. It's maybe not safe in their alabaster chambers, but it's a very, very strong first line. This poem is 13 lines total, three stanzas of four lines, and then five lines, and then four lines. Here we go, poem 224. An awful tempest mashed the air. <laughs> Pause there. Are you ready for this? <laughs> it's a great October poem. An awful tempest mashed the air. The clouds were gaunt and few. A black, as of a specter's cloak, hid heaven and earth from view. Can you picture the storm here? Clouds that are gaunt and few with a blackness that... A blackness like a cloak that blots the sky and casts the earth in shadow. What are the gaunt and few clouds if there's all that blackness? Well, have you ever seen it when a storm rolls in and there's a solid bank of clouds overhead? The sky is completely darkened and then there are a few low clouds, wispy and gray, getting their light from somewhere. They come in underneath, floating. You can see them them trailing under the, the cover of the sky, almost like smoke. That's what I imagine here. A specter's cloak. We're humanizing the tempest. It's a cloak. The, the cloak, that can, the tempest that can mash the air. Who mashes air? Can a human being, have you ever tried to mash air? Not really. A storm can, though. Okay. Back to the poem. Next stanza. The creature's chuckled on the roofs and whistled in the air and shook their fists and gnashed their teeth and swung their frenzied hair. Now we don't have a 
just a human-like tempest. We have a, a kind of sorcerer tempest who comes in with his cloak, and what emerges? Creatures, almost like goblins, swirling around. In a frenzy, they jump on the roofs and chuckle. They whistle through the air. They shake their fists. They swing their hair and gnash their teeth. Can you picture these evil spirits laughing at us, delighting in their own furious chaos? Now picture a storm without the goblins. The lightning, the thunder, the gusts of wind, the sounds of hard rain on a roof, the giddiness of a storm, the take-no-prisoners destruction that it brings. The storm does as it wants, with nothing to stop it. Now put those goblins back in. They're easy to picture, right? When you're inside, you can imagine that outside is full of these wild spirits, like Satan, with an army of devils. Next stanza. The morning lit. Okay, good storm's over. The morning lit, the birds arose, the monster's faded eyes turned slowly to his native coast, and peace was paradise. Exclamation mark. Okay, four very simple lines here. Four lines, four dashes, and an exclamation mark. The beauty, not, not four lines, not dashes at the end of each line. There's Dashes in the middle. <laughs> Try to do that just with a reading so you can get the sense of the punctuation. Okay, what do we have? The beauty and relief and placidity of a dawn after the storm. It's one of the things I hate about living in D.C., having moved here from Wisconsin. We used to get the most beautiful weather after a thunderstorm. Back home, we'd have ferocious humidity, debilitating humidity. It would build, and the pressure would build and build, and then, pow, we'd get the storm, and the humidity would crack. The storm cracked the humidity, we'd say. It cracked the heat, and we could breathe again. Here in D.C., it will be humid, and there will be a storm, and afterwards, it'll be even more humid than before. Swamp weather. I never get used to it. I, every time the thunderstorm, thunderstorm comes and I get ready for the cool breeze after. Nope. <laughs> I'm with Emily, though. I want the peace and paradise of the morning after when the monster is tired of his game, his goblins have, have gone back under their cloak. His eyes have faded and he turns back to the coast where he comes from, his native coast. He's a dweller of the sea, after all. It's where he draws the wind and rain on his forays on the land. And he's slipped back into his hell, and we have sunshine and birds and peace, which is, for Emily, paradise. The biblical Satan destroyed paradise, didn't he? It was gone forever, thanks to his tricks. But in Emily's world... Paradise is not gone forever. It's renewable. It comes with the morning. It comes after a storm has broken. And it's signaled by birds. Surprised she didn't sneak a few bees in there, too. That's poem 224, An Awful Tempest Mashed the Air. Fantastic stuff. We'll take a quick break and come back with Celia Brayfield and the story 
of Black Beauty by Anna Sewell. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, Dr. Celia Brayfield is a senior lecturer in creative writing at Bath Spa University in England. She's also the author of nine novels and six nonfiction titles, including Rebel Writers, The Accidental Feminists, which looks at young women writers of the 1960s. She joins us today for a discussion of her book, Writing Black Beauty, Anna Sewell, The Creation of a Novel, and the Story of Animal Rights. Celia Brayfield, welcome to the History of Literature. Um, thank you so much for inviting me on. So Black Beauty is one of those books that's on a lot of shelves in homes and libraries and schools and published in 1877 and still beloved. But I'm looking forward to learning more about the author and the book's innovative aspects and its impact. So let's okay. start with the author. Who was Anna Sewell? Anna Sewell was a disabled, retired Sunday school teacher. Mm who was aware that she was terminally ill in just over 50 years of age mm. when she decided that it was now or never and she was going to write a book. Yeah. You know, her strength was some days she was strong, some days she wasn't, some days she, her mother had to help her. And she wasn't even sure in the beginning that she was actually, it was actually going to make a book. So it was a long process. It, it took her probably six years or so to actually put the book together. Right. And so up until the age of 50, was she someone who was writing in other areas? Was she a journalist or any sort of correspondent? Or was this, I mean, you mentioned she was a Sunday school teacher, but what kind of life was she living up to that point? Well, she was living a very restricted life because she was disabled. Mm -hmm. When she was about 14, she was a schoolgirl in London she was coming home from school. It poured with rain, as it often does in the UK. And she ran, started running. She slipped on some wet leaves. It's the kind of accident that could happen to anybody. Yeah. But she broke her ankle 
And of course, in those days, this would have been the the mid-19th century. There were no x-rays. Her family couldn't afford a doctor anyway. And nobody was quite sure how badly she was injured until the injury did not get better over time. It started to get worse. And for most of her life, she couldn't walk. And for most of her life, she was in constant pain. Did this take her away from horses? Was she able to ride side saddle or anything? She was the granddaughter of a farmer. Mm -hmm. uh, Her family, her mother's family, were farmers in Norfolk. So she had been tumbling on and off ponies since she was tiny. They spent all the family holidays on the farm there. And in the 19th century Britain, a middle-class woman would have been expected to ride side saddle. Yeah. So she rode side saddle, and as your listeners will know, if they've ever tried riding side saddle, you only actually use one foot, but you use your right leg for balance and your left leg to give the aids to the horse. And this meant that even though she couldn't walk because her foot wouldn't bear her weight, she could ride. Mm. And she continued to ride, and as her family fortunes improved, and her father started commuting by railway to his job in a bank, uh, she used to drive him to the station. So she started driving a pony trap, and she continued riding and driving all her life. And that really opened the world to her. Yeah, It meant that she could work. The family moved around a lot, but wherever they were, she was an educator, really. She set up a school. At one point, she was running a school for miners in a mining village. Mm. And she was an absolutely fearless rider. Um, All the family remarked on it. She would go out in terrible weather. She would go out at night. Nothing stopped her. And really, she owed the fulfilling life she had two horses. Yeah. You can see how someone in her position would develop this sort of appreciation, if not uh, even an empathy with the horses that she was working with because of what they were able to do for her. Yeah. And she could get out and enjoy nature too. But I, I think there was definitely empathy there. She was definitely a very empathetic person. But she was also brought up as a Quaker. Mm. And although she, although her injury really provoked a crisis of faith for her. And she really struggled to see God's purpose in giving her a life of pain and disability. The Quaker belief is that uh, there is God in all creation, that men, women, animals, they are all manifestations of God himself. So, I mean, what I think is so sweet is that she talked to her horses all the time. Mm. Um, people, She wasn't physically very strong. But she talked to her horses, and they seemed to understand her. So, you know, they would go out driving. She would talk to the horse using thee and thou instead of you, which um, the Quakers did. Yeah. And, so, and she would say, thee must not go so fast. Thee will be sorry when thee gets up to the hit, top of the hill. Thee will be tired. And, <laughs> um, yeah, it's sweet, isn't it? Yeah. And you wonder if maybe they responded because they heard that respect in her in her voice. Maybe others who would treat a, a horse more like an animal wouldn't get that same kind of response. I think horses are very smart animals, and mm-hmm. I think they know 
I think they would definitely have had a sense that she was treating them as a fellow creature. Right. Okay, so we've got sort of the Quaker piece, and we have the circumstances of her accident being two of the the prongs, so to speak, that have informed the way she's looking at horses. But the third prong, I think, is books and writing. And I understand that she had a, a kind of a, she was kind of the inheritor of that in some sense of, of her family. She had other writers in her family. Absolutely. I mean, this was a revelation to me. I discovered that she was actually from a family of best-selling writers. Mm. Notably, her mother. I mean, her mother was the big writing success story in the family. Her mother started writing seriously when she was 60, and she wrote what William Makepeace Thackeray sneered at in Vanity Fair (laughs) as low church verse novels. Verse novels. Yeah. We don't have a lot of those these days. No, we don't. They are unusual. Yeah. And they require a lot of skill. Mm Mm-hmm. Her mother had worked as a volunteer social worker most of her life, and she too was a very empathetic person, and she had a great rapport with the poor and deprived people whose lives she tried to make better. Mm. And she started to use this knowledge in writing books. Mid-19th century, probably half the population only is, is able to read. So she was writing for people who would have the book read to them Mm. or had quite limited literacy so her writing was very simple it was deliberately using quite simple words mostly words of one syllable and really ingenious catchy rhythms and rhymes Mm. Mm -hmm. they're very moralistic books they cover a lot of the same turf as charles dickens in in writing about the poor but they are incredibly beguiling, and you you really have to admire the extraordinary skill that went into creating them. Mm. So what was Thackeray's problem? Is that just snobbery on his part? or Yeah, yeah. it was just snobbery. I mean, it was quite interesting. To me, the reception of women's writing in the 19th century was something else that writing Black Beauty really broadened my understanding of, because... We think of the Brontes or of George Mm -hmm. Eliot Mm -hmm. as women who needed to take men's names in order to be published. And the sort of consensual understanding was that it was very difficult for women to be published under their own names at this time. But that's not strictly true. Mm. There were literally thousands of women who were very well published, but they were not writing as the Brontes were shocking books. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. And they did not have literary ambitions. Their writing was more in accord with the perception of women's roles at the time. They were writing, quotes, improving books. Right. Or educational books. Anna had an aunt who I called really the David Attenborough of her day oh, because uh-huh. she was a popular natural history writer. Mm. She wrote a book called The Observing Eye, which was very widely praised. It was about how you teach children to understand and appreciate the natural world. And Queen Victoria chose that book for her own children. So Anna has a mother and an aunt and then a third relative, not strictly a relative because she's like an aunt by marriage. And she wrote what were called conduct books for women. Mm. And these were really proto-feminist essays. They were about the role of women in 
society, in British society at this time, when suddenly a very young woman was the head of state. Queen Victoria was a teenager when she became queen. And I think it changed the way women in England thought about themselves. Mm. And Anna's aunt, Sarah Stickney Ellis, really captured that feeling. And she wrote a series of four books, and they were all enormously successful. So Anna had a tremendous literary heritage. Right. Were those women in her family, it's, it sounds like they were able to make it a career, so to speak, or were they able to earn enough money that this was a sole source of income? Was that something that Anna would have seen among the, the writers that she knew, or was this sort of a, a sideline or a, a hobby of the writers that she was in contact with? Well, they were all Quakers, and so they all had a sense of duty mm. to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. in whatever way they could. Her mother certainly earned a lot of money, which is just as well because her father's gift was rather losing money. Um, (laughs) Hence, the family's fortunes were really up and down. Um, One of Mary Sewell's books sold over a million copies. Mm. That's an absolutely phenomenal sale for the time. Yeah, sure. Um. So, but I don't think money was anything, was at all on Anna's mind when she wrote Black Beauty. Mm -hmm. Um, She said in her journal, I want to write a book that promotes kindness to animals. Mm. What was preventing her from writing it? Why did she not start it until she was 50? You have to understand the relationship with her mother. Mm. Anna, although the daughter, was the sensible one. The mother was much more imaginative, much more emotional. Anna, perhaps partly also because of her disability, was more reserved. She was more sensible. She worked very closely with her mother. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, she was what would have been called the alpha reader for her mother, the first person who ever saw her mother's books. And she edited them effectively. I mean, you know, there are records of conversations between them mm-hmm. where she's saying, you know, your meaning's not quite right here, or how about using this word there? And so she worked very closely with a very successful author. It kind of inhibits your own sense of what you can achieve. And I think it was the the terminal diagnosis, the understanding that her life was limited, Mm. that made her feel it's now or never. Right. I have to do this. Right. I have more questions about her, of course, and about the book, but I'm just curious what kinds of sources you were able to find. Are these, were these letters or a journal or what were you able to pull from in order to put together such intimate details about why she wrote and, you know, the circumstances of the writing and so on? Well, advice to young historians, ordinary women and ordinary women who are childless are very difficult biographical subjects. Mm. Nobody really kept Anna's letters in a body. Mm-hmm. They're scattered. She was childless, and her estate was eventually inherited by one of her nieces, who was also childless. So there's no huge body of correspondence. Mm-hmm. There are letters. There is a cache of letters in the county records office in Norfolk, which is where the family came from and where Anna ended her life. And there are scattered individual letters that come up for auction every now and then that shed a little more light. 
But the major source, actually, we owe to her mother's fame. Mm. Her mother had a collaborator who was herself an acclaimed author, Mary Bailey, Mrs. Bailey. Mrs. Bailey wrote a, a really important book in social history called Ragged Homes and How to Mend Them. And she worked with Anna's <laughs> mother as a social worker. And she, uh, uh, in the last years of Anna's mother's life, she outlived her daughter just by less than 10 years. Um, but in those years, she collected uh, reminiscences from family friends, essays from her mother at various times, extracts from Anna's journal, and she compiled them all mm. into this book called The Life and Letters of Mrs. Sewell, which is really it's still the primary source. Mm. Okay, let's take a quick break and then we'll talk about Black Beauty and its reception. Okay, we're back. Dr. Brayfield, what kind of a book is Black Beauty? What story does it tell? Okay, so the full title of the book is Black Beauty, His Grooms and Companions, the Autobiography of a Horse Translated from the Original Equine. (laughs) So this gives you the clue that this is an anthropomorphic novel. It's a novel in which an animal is given human characteristics. Um, But that said, this is probably the first anthropomorphic novel. Uh, Mm. You you can find anthropomorphism in literature going back to classical mythology, um, to the fables of Aesop, for example. But no no one had ever written a whole novel with a beginning, middle and end about an animal. Right. Um, and Black Beauty is unusual because it's narrated by the horse. Yeah. He talks about his life. He talks about his happy childhood, his um, happy early life, how he, the family who own him move abroad. And so he and his stablemates are sold, how they pass from um, good owners to bad owners. I mean, it's, it's a very moving book. Their health is gradually ruined almost almost permanently by simply a lack of care by ignorant or lazy grooms who don't look after them and by owners who work them too hard. The owners themselves had miserable, wretched, deprived lives. But the passage in the book that people always remember is when Beauty's friend and stablemate, a a chestnut called Ginger, passes away. And Mm. You know, the implica- it's very delicately handled in Black Beauty, but the implication is quite clear that poor Ginger was worked to death. Mm. They were both uh, working as cab horses in London at the time, and this happened. It was almost a cliche of London life that a, a, a cab horse would drop dead in the street. Mm. And it was really this lack of care brought on by ignorance and by poverty that Anna wanted to change. 
And she didn't write the book for children because it's very simply written and it's very affecting and it's very empathetic. It is considered classic of children's literature now, but it was actually written for young criminals. It was written for the boys in a reform school that her family had set up. Hmm. The idea was that they took young men who had committed minor offenses like shoplifting, for example, and instead of condemning them to a life of crime in prison, they put them in a reform school and they taught them trades. And in the mid-19th century, they would be teaching them how to look after horses, how to be carters, how to be farm workers, how to be cab drivers. Still, although this is the age of steam and steam is coming in, the primary power, source of power in factories and mills is still the horse. And it was these ordinary working horses that Anna wanted people to be kind to. Mm. When you say it was written for the people of the school, do you mean that that was the type of reader that she had in mind? Or was she putting this together as something that would be kind of taught in a, not a classroom necessarily, but handed out to these particular students, for example? Well, what... Her aunt Anne Wright, the David Attenborough of her day, had taught at the school. It was called the Red House. She was quite celebrated as a teacher there and celebrated for her ability to control a class of unruly young men. And I think this is definitely the readership that Anna was thinking of, although she knew that she herself would not live, would never regain her health and would not live to actually teach again. I'm not sure she thought too much about what would actually happen with the book. What happened was her mother, remember, a big best-selling author, took the book to her own publishers, Gerald's of Norwich, and said, would you like to publish this little book of my daughter's? Now, Gerald's obviously wanted to keep their star author happy, so they said yes, and they offered £20, which is not a lot of money, even then. Even then. They offered £20 to buy out all the rights. Right. And she, I wanted to quote uh, something from your uh, book. Uh, I found it to be so beautiful and so kind of central to Anna and her project and just the way she approached it. And you write, uh, from her bedroom, Anna could see the natural world that gave her so much delight, the wild birds pecking at a feeder on the tree in the garden, the deer in the park of the great country estate in the distance. From her balcony, she could watch the horses on the street outside and talk to their owners, asking about their lives, quote, because I am anxious, if I can, to present their true conditions and their great difficulties in a correct and telling manner, end quote. It just seems like, I guess, nearing the end of her life, knowing she was had months to live, and with this Quaker background of trying to do good and improve the world, she felt like the world could be improved by people understanding more about horses and the way they're treated and the way they respond to it, and really the injustice and the cruelty that went along with so much of what Victorian society was doing to these horses. That's absolutely right, yes. And it's very touching and it's so admirable that with the very last strength she had, she was trying to get things right. 
as a writer myself and somebody with a journalistic background, you really recognize that desire to tell the truth, to get things right. She recorded a lovely conversation she had with a cab driver on the street outside where he was saying, it's all very well these people hiring me to take them to church, but they never think that I'm working on the Sabbath and that's their fault. Mm, Right. It kind of struck a chord with people, right? It, 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 I mean, did this happen right away? Was the initial response overwhelming? Because it, it seems like what people were responding to was maybe something that they themselves had felt or it awakened in them a kind of feeling. They were familiar with horses, but that these weren't machines. There was something closer to human beings about them that, that they could respond in this way to this anthropomorphic novel. I think there was a feeling in society generally that we needed to treat animals better. Mm-hmm. And I think what Black Beauty did was it touched people's hearts as well as their minds. And in Britain, we had the RSPCA, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Mm-hmm. And they had struggled really to get through to ordinary people, largely because, you know, their patron was Queen Victoria, who was a sincere and very effective animal lover. But they were kind of too posh. They were too elitist. They really struggled to make ordinary people sympathetic to their cause. Mm. And Black Beauty achieved that. But I think for the real outstanding success of this book, we have to look to America Mm. We have to look to a really extraordinary activist, George Thorndike Angel, a Boston lawyer who gave up his practice to devote his life to animal welfare. And he was looking for a book. He wrote this overtly and in these words in his journal. He was looking for a book to do for animal welfare what Uncle Tom's Cabin had done for the abolitionist cause. Mm. And 13 years after the book came out in England, one of Angel's supporters sent him a copy of Black Beauty, and he wrote in his diary, at last, the book has come to me. Mm. And he, I mean, he was the most extraordinary man. He was so dynamic, absolutely tireless, and very clever. He crowdfunded its publication so it could be given away free. He embarked on a 40-city promotion tour. Can you imagine a 40-city tour in a year? I mean, that's a hard going for a best-selling writer nowadays. Yeah. And he was doing this by railway and by horsepower. Yeah. And he worked very closely with Henry Berg, who set up the first animal welfare organization in New York. But he was going to take over the world. His ambition for the cause of animal welfare was limitless. And he started to found a network of animal welfare organizations throughout the world. And his records show that editions of Black Beauty were being published literally all over the world. And they were coming to the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, who then held the world rights. Right. So Anna Sewell passed away soon after the publication. Did she have any sense of the book's future success? Was it well-reviewed or or was it was it taking off at all? Or did that happen only after she passed away? It had some success. I mean, 
it, it is an extraordinary book and it moves everybody who reads it. Yeah. And she gave some copies to people and people passed copies to each other. She died um, five months after it was published. And her mother, they had such a close relationship. Her mother really had lost her best friend as well as her mm. daughter. Mm-hmm. And in her grief, she went back to her publishers and said, you have to try harder to sell this book. And then uh, Anna knew that people she admired who were already active in the cause of animal welfare had admired the book. And her mother got a rave letter from one of these activists and she took it into Anna in her sick room and said, I've come to put your crown on. Wow. Yeah, it wouldn't necessarily have surprised her if she could look ahead into the future and see that it was destined to become a a classic and a classic of animal rights. I think it would have surprised her because she was... Uh, she was brought up as a Quaker, and she uh, held Quaker values um, throughout her life. And, you know, modesty I- is one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, she w- she was not ambitious, as we understand the word today. She was only ambitious to do good. And I think she would have been absolutely delighted. Mm. Do you think, uh, because the book was intended for adults and and now it's considered a children's classic, as you mentioned before, do you think that would have bothered her? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I think I think right throughout the animal welfare movement, there was a very quick understanding that if adults were difficult to reach, children could be taught. And one thing the RSPCA did was they copied the the temperance movement in setting up what were called bands of mercy in schools. They set up children's groups where the the children took a pledge to be kind to animals and a whole value system of kindness was taught to children as young as they could possibly understand it. So I think, you know, the fact that it's considered a children's classic would have pleased her. Right. It sort of reminds me of a, I mean, I'm from... Wisconsin, where there's a lot of deer hunting. And I, I had a friend once who who his family went deer hunting, but he didn't go. And he said, I'm not going out there to kill Bambi's mother. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that came straight from his cartoon watching when he was five mm-hmm. years old, probably. And my guess is there were probably a lot of mm-hmm. young Victorians who were growing up and, and Americans who were still in the age of horse. Oh, that reminds me, there's a particular practice that I understand that this book ended, which is the use of bearing reins. That's right. I mean, in America, you call it, call it the check rein. Mm. Mm-hmm. And in Britain, legislation was passed to outlaw this piece of harness as a direct result of black beauty. Mm-hmm. What the check rein does is it makes the horse pull his chin in. It makes him arch his neck so he looks very showy. It's considered a good carriage in a horse, but it holds the horse's head too too close. It affects his breathing, it affects his neck, and it can cut his mouth. Angel recorded the case of a horse harnessed with the bearing rein that had made a two-inch cut in the horse's mouth. And it was quite common to see horses harnessed with the bearing rein with blood in their saliva and blood foaming out of their mouths. There is no need for this piece of harness. It's entirely about the way the horse looks. And that was very, very common. I mean, poignantly, when the horse-drawn hearse 
came to take Anna to the burial ground after she had passed away. Those horses were harnessed with bearing reins. And her mother was very angry and made the undertaker remove them mm. so that Anna would not make her last journey that way. Mm. So as a novelist and creative writer yourself, is there anything in particular that you admire about Anna Sewell's fiction writing? Have we absorbed all of her lessons now, or can you still find something in the book that you can learn from or emulate? Well, what I would say to my students is to notice the absolutely extraordinary verbal dexterity mm. which she had. Yeah. I mean, this is not showy writing. Uh -huh. This is not $10 words. Yeah. This is very simple language, but it is used with the most tremendous skill. Right. And if you look at the life that Anna and her mother shared, I mean, they would begin in the morning, Quakers traditionally would have begun with a Bible reading, but her mother liked to begin with a reading of poetry or possibly an essay. So they would begin the day with reading, they would spend the morning writing, they would meet for lunch and talk about what they had read or written, and so the day would go on. The afternoon they would drive out into nature perhaps to restore themselves a little, and then in the evening they read to each other. We forget how reading aloud in the days before Netflix was a major entertainment right. in educated households. Anna's mother recorded instances where they started reading a book which they loved so much and they were so swept away by that they binge read it just as people would binge watch yeah. a TV series <laughs> now. They binge read it until two or three in the morning. Right. And I would imagine that her, a lot of her writing style and, and her dexterity, as you called it, it's one thing to read great books, but it's another thing to be trying to write them yourself. And for her to be there with her mother as her mother was writing verse novels, of all things, where you're sort mm -hmm. of constantly trying to select the right word for the right situation, and for Anna to be part of that, they must have been really honing their skills as wordsmiths in trying to, you know, write and edit these books. And I, I'm guessing it just gave her this facility with language that is probably uh, uh, not available to everyone, but well-earned on Anna's part. I think it's available to everyone, but it requires application. Mm -hmm. Something else to say is that Anna and her mother read very well. I mean, her mother began with the poetry of Byron and the novels of Walter Scott as a mm -hmm. young girl. Anna was a great fan of Tennyson, and there was a belief in the family that they had actually met and formed a friendship at a time in their lives when Tennyson was, both Tennyson and Anna were visiting spas and undertaking hydrotherapy treatment. Now, it's a great regret to me that I could not actually find any evidence for this. Yeah. It's certainly possible, but certainly Anna, one of Anna's most prized possessions was a copy of Tennyson's great poem, In Memoriam, with her notes. She read it and reread it and, and annotated almost every page. So, they were acquainted with great literature, but they chose to write for ordinary people. Mm. And also to write in translation from the equine. Yes. And, <laughs> and I think that a great influence on Anna was the painter Edwin Landseer, 
who was one of Queen Victoria's favorite artists and who was an animal painter his entire career. He was completely devoted to painting animals. But his paintings are, in their own way, anthropomorphic because he does bring out the human qualities in the animals he painted. His most famous painting, was a, virtually a visual cliché, was the Monarch of the Glen, which is a wonderful painting of a, a highland stag in all his arrogance, apparent arrogance and glory. And another of his most famous paintings is Dignity and Impudence, where there's a cheeky little lapdog and a great big bloodhound, and he imagines the relationship between the two animals. And Anna certainly knew Lancia's work, and she did, in fact, copy the painting of the Monarch of the Glen. So I'm thinking that that influence uh, kind of unconsciously came out in her desire to write from the point of view of an animal. Mm. And it gives us that reminder of of something that art does so well, art and literature, that in asking us to exercise our powers of empathy, whether it's writing it or creating it or reading and, and observing it, it it encourages us to see the humanity in others, but also to to expand the humanity in ourselves. That's I think that's very true, yes. Mm. The book is called Writing Black Beauty, Anna Sewell, The Creation of a Novel and the Story of Animal Rights. Celia Brayfield, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Thank you so much for asking me. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of The History of Literature. My thanks to Dr. Celia Brayfield for joining me and to Emily Dickinson and her Tempest and her subsequent peace and paradise and as always to you dear listeners my thanks to you as well i hope you're enjoying october we haven't had too much spookiness yet here on the history of literature i guess we did have virginia wolf in her haunted house at the beginning of the month that was a a modernist version of a ghost story but we'll be back soon with a classic version of one by mr washington irving we all know the story of ichabod crane and the headless horseman But just who was Washington Irving? That might be less well-known, I think. And what else? Let's see. Oh, yes. Homer is coming up soon. And an episode on Black Nature Writing. A very interesting anthology has just come out. And I am trying to put something together with Mike Palindrome on D.H. Lawrence. And I've been reading Balzac. Like, gangbusters. So... He might sneak in at some point, too. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) We're all done. (laughs) I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.